Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that has had 49 proposals of marriage. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance substack The Loose Cravat, a book collector, and a book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. If you were to ask someone in the 20th century what a romance novelist looked like, they'd likely have visions of pink chiffon, bright blue eyeshadow, false eyelashes, and excessive costume jewelry, thanks to one woman, Barbara Cartland, who was dubbed by the Romantic Times as the Queen of Romance. Cartland was larger than life, but like most outsized figures, the quote, self-publicizing juggernaut was also very controversial. In her Telegraph obituary, they called her the most reliable soundbite artist of her times. Though many of her readers are women, Barbara Cartland has never liked nor ever will like women in general. Gwen Robbins wrote in Barbara's 1984 authorized biography, stating that, quote, she was the prototype of the 300 odd virgins she was to create in her novels in years to come. Virgins, not heroines. At times, Cartlin referred to the women she wrote as Cinderella's, but they were always virginal, typically coupled with a more stern, dark-haired man. From the 1920s until her death in the year 2000, she wrote over 700 novels, breaking records for both sales and speed. Her favorite period to write were 19th century historical romances, but as a self-proclaimed history buff, she didn't limit herself to settings in England. She was outspoken about public health, premarital sex, education, and above all else, herself. A public figure for most of her life, Barbara Cartland was a gossip column, radio, and talk show staple. She was sometimes caught in a baby blue frock, but for the most part, Barbara Cartland only wore pink. She was inspired by the pink walls in King Tut's tomb when she visited in the 1920s, saying, I was so impressed that I vowed to wear it for the rest of my life. In her later years, with changing societal mores, people would wonder at Cartland's continued relevance. But while her sales ebbed and flowed, she always had her devoted readers. Before writing this episode, I thought I knew a lot about Barbara Cartland, and while perhaps I knew more than most, I was barely scratching the surface. Today's episode is a wild ride, so buckle in, virgins. So I guess before we get started, I wanted to ask you guys, what do you know about Barbara Cartland? Like maybe before I started sending you a million texts this week. I literally knew nothing about Barbara Cartland, but that really? has changed rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> I knew she had beef with people. I think I knew that from one of your TikToks like early, um, maybe when you were talking about her. I also knew that I had started one of her books and like immediately dropped it. I was like, this is so boring and bad um it was published in like an anthology that i had gotten that was like five barbara Car cartland novels they were all together so i picked it up at a library book sale started it and i was like i don't i also i, I it was before i realized that i much prefer reading like trade paperback shaped books mm -hmm. um so that was also it was like a sensory experience that i didn't enjoy but i didn't like the book that i had read and didn't got rid of the book um so that was pretty much all i knew about her and i think i knew what she looked like which is a big part of her that sounds like surface level but it is <laughs> what she looks part. like is a huge part of of cartland's sort of mythology so i knew i had an image of what she looked like yeah it's a very striking uh yeah. appearance <laughs> very pink yes <laughs> yeah okay well we're gonna learn a lot more today <laughs> yes so i'm gonna back up over a century so 
Barbara Kirtland was born in 1901, and she's a direct descendant of what Gwen Robin calls in her biography, quote, the oldest Saxon family in existence. So it's tracing back to Thomas de Scobenhole, a high sheriff of Devonshire in 1032, which is 32 years before the Norman Conquest. So quite old. (laughs) So even with this history, there is kind of an attempt to bootstrap her legacy. So this is from Henry Cloud's uh, Barbara Cartland, Crusader in Pink. Quote, she finds such connections like the dukes and marquises she writes about very romantic, but her immediate past lies not with the upper aristocracy. Like many writers of her period, she comes from the most fertile of imaginative seed beds, the dispossessed Edwardian gentry. I think that's like the funniest phrase I've ever heard. (laughs) So the dispossessed part is her paternal grandfather. So we can kind of like back up to that level. So Kirtland's Camfield estate, she bought it in the 1950s and it used to be owned by Beatrix Potter, but it has statues of her maternal grandparents. Her paternal grandparents are the ones that kind of like lost the money, but she's much more interested in the history of her maternal grandparents, judging by the amount of space that they take up in her biographies. So her maternal grandfather is Colonel Scoble. So he was a Victorian man, and Gwen Robbins called him an explorer and adventurer. So he was the first man to climb Mount Blanc. He sounds like kind of a jerk. Like he, in, in a weird but revealing moment, Robbins described him as having Saxon blue eyes and a fine crop of curly hair. But she like inexplicably quotes him as saying that he slept with women of every nationality in the world and the Japanese are much the best. So this is kind of like... Yikes. The level... It's wild to be in your granddaughter's biography. Someone was like, we're going to say like three things about her grandfather and this is one of them. Oh God, yeah. It's so <laughs> telling. It's like, I think we'll we'll circle back to this over and over again, but something that I think a lot about Barbara Cartlin is just the amount of... I don't know what the right word is. Excusing, apologetic. The way that she treats the men in her life is so, so telling. She gives them a pass. She's like, oh yeah, they had this going for them and this was hard for them. And then we will see how she treats her uh, women relatives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see, won't we? Yeah. But so he, but he's, he's dashing, right? Like mm-hmm. in her mind, he's very dashing. So he kind of gets to take up the space. So Scoble married Cartland's grandmother, Edith. And Edith's mother was a very famously petite heiress named Mary Ann Hamilton. Uh, Mary Ann had seven daughters before she died in her late 20s, and Edith was the sixth daughter. So they split the fortune among all of the daughters. Uh, Robbins spends a lot of time comparing and contrasting the stature of Marianne and her daughter Edith. Uh, I think this is because Barbara Cartland is like dictating this right to Robbins. So Edith has none of her mother's delicacy. That's something that comes up a lot. Like who has the ankles? Who is small? (laughs) Who is tiny? Like that is like a really big concern for this particular biography. But Edith had charm and wit. And apparently one of her favorite sayings was all men are polygamists at heart. Which I think is something that someone who eventually married George Goebel would say. <laughs> like, yes. they, like, it just is more sad than anything. Yeah. George was a neglectful husband to Edith. So he had a really, really nasty temper. So when Edith had a daughter, he was enraged. Like, he was so angry. And so then when she had three daughters, he was near apoplectic. So in that third daughter, Mary Hamilton was nicknamed Polly, and Polly was Barbara Cartland's mother. So George 
eventually got the son that he wanted, uh, who went on to become Major General Sir John Scoble, who rose to prominence during the First World War and was continuously lauded and celebrated until his death in the 1940s. So I want to I want to circle back to George, though, and particularly what Barbara Cartland thought about her grandfather, George. Beth, can you read this uh, quote from Gwen Robin's book? Though Barbara is the first to admit that tolerance is not one of her strongest points, she does not have George Scoble's chronic bad temper, which led him into tyrannical rages. Poor Edith suffered greatly under these outbursts, and the marriage, especially in the beginning, was often stormy. Larger than life in every way, George Scoble found it impossible to accept the restrictions of Victorian family life. Being a man of strong character, he rebelled in the only way he knew, much to Edith's distress. Her own brothers were so different, charming, well-mannered, and considerate to women. George Scoble's thunderous moods, which ricocheted round the house like a tempest, were, according to Barbara, merely an outlet for something far deeper. She wrote of him. He wanted beauty, the beauty he sought among old masters and young mistresses. He enjoyed physical danger and mental achievement. Trivialities put him into a rage against the conventional security of the English landscape. Only the broad horizons, the snow-capped mountains against a foreign sky, tempestuous seas, and strange unknown nationalities could assuage some aching need within himself. So what do you think of that? <laughs> like we were talking about, it's just like, he sounds abusive, honestly, but she's just like, oh, he just, he was too big for this life, this conventional <laughs> life. Like, oh my goodness. And like the thing that would cure his temper is like, imperialism like if only he had, <laughs> he had the money to like go conquer someone yeah. we, we wouldn't have to be dealing with his bad temper he would be like having this outlet of like like being able to be like an, an adventurer like i think she's she's already like envisioning him as like a pirate king or like a like i imagine him like being on a ship during a war sort of sending him out in the these ways like she you can you can see that this like language is also this language it sounds like she's describing a romance novel hero in a yeah. lot of ways that like we, we want him to sort of be outside of society. But however, you live in a society, George. <laughs> you can't act like this. <laughs> what really stuck out to me too is that Robin says, poor Edith suffered greatly under these outbursts. So it's kind of like poor Edith put upon, like the sympathy isn't ostensibly is with her, but it's not really because it's just kind of like, oh, this woman like does not know how to handle this whirlwind of a man this is kind of a recurring theme in Barbara Cartland's life. Mm -hmm. You were right, Beth. Uh, so George Scoble was abusive. He was very temperamental. And there's this anecdote that just really kind of it really stressed me out. It upset me where he cropped all of his daughter's hair short to save money. But there's no record of there being money trouble at the time. Like, so I don't think that he was actually doing like saving money on haircuts. I think that he was just being a jerk. He was also frequently heard to bemoan, why should I be blessed with such damned ugly daughters? The Lord only knows. He didn't really want he's the kind daughters. Of, he's the kind of guy yeah. that you would do like a gender reveal party and when it would be like pink, he would like be throwing stuff. Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I think this happens a lot in history too, where it's like if a man marries a hot heiress and then he has daughters that he finds like not as like beautiful or he's like why aren't you as beautiful it's like where do you think that comes from my dude yeah. <laughs> if you married someone beautiful <laughs> right and your daughters are not lookers and like you have to find other qualities in them it's like there are only two people involved here 
it, it's coming from you. I think it's probably George's fault that they're if if even if they if they are less attractive, which who knows? Maybe he's just being a dick. Very probable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, we definitely was. So apparently, the cropped hair didn't look too bad on Polly, as it quote enhanced her gamine qualities. So she was actually a little bit of a hoyden and apparently George's favorite child. So she was very vivacious and very popular. And then she later went on to marry Barbara Cartland's father, Bertram Cartland or Bertie. Uh, And so Bertie's father, James Cartland, opened a brass factory during the Industrial Revolution. So he was a very wealthy man and he was twice offered a baronetcy. But he declined because apparently he liked the title Esquire better, which I think is kind of funny. I don't mm-hmm. know. What is, if you're a baronet, a who's your sir? Like, uh, yes, sir would be baronet. And then Esquire, he's just because I guess he's just he's a, lawyer. a lawyer. Like, I'm an Esquire, Ooh. technically. Uh, should, it's you like should a, use that, Emma. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I just sign things Esquire. It's like if you're barred, you get to use. I don't know how it works in England. Oh, right. It, 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 it's like it, I could sign things as Esquire if I wanted to because I, I, I am technically an attorney. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I need more written letters from you, stat. Right. (laughs) So James Cartland, Barbara Cartland's paternal grandfather, is kind of where that dispossessed Edwardian gentry moniker comes into play. So there was a financial slump in 1902 when Barbara was a toddler, and a bank called in the 250,000 pounds that they loaned to James Cartland for the Fishguard Railway. The bank was demanding this money in cash, and James actually ended up shooting himself shortly after this really devastating financial news. Bertie and Polly were living at an estate named Bowbrook at the time, and they had to evacuate because they didn't have the title to it. They thought that they did, but upon James' death, they realized that they didn't actually own it. They were also spending very frivolously beforehand and had their own personal debts. They were doing that thing that aristocrats in historical romance do, where they live on credit, but when news got out that they were bankrupt, suddenly everybody wanted them to pay up. There's this quote from Polly that is oft-repeated by the Cartland clan. Poor I may be, but common I am not. So I like that this is their mantra because poor is very subjective here. So... I guess we're going to kind of talk about how much money they had and kind of put it into context. So Polly and Bertie, neither of them worked at the time, and they still had 300 pound income a year. It's 200 pounds a year that Bertie got from Mrs. Cartland and 100 a year that George Scobo gave Polly annually. Some online calculators put that at around 35,000 pounds annually, like in 2017's money. So I'm not entirely sure how accurate that is, but... A, it's not nothing, and B, I suspect that it's worth more than that because Bertie and Polly were still able to keep two servants, a nurse for Barbara and a maid of all work. The money, I I think that they were probably still firmly middle class based on the fact that they were able to have two servants with them. I think it's hard to like match up what how how far money went in the past compared to now because it's like things are worth different like labor is much cheaper back at that time but now labor is much more expensive so to have someone who's like doing work for you like a large chunk of your income would be going to going to them but Mm -hmm. it's like i can't how can we put a price on the fact that they had these servants and a nurse doing work for them that freed them up to do other things like it's hard to be like oh yeah that's worth x amount of dollars or like 
did they have access to land? Like, what kind of access did they have to transportation? Like, all these things is just very difficult to put money on and then translate it into today's dollars. Yeah, and it seems like the fall parallels that phrase, like, dispossessed Edwardian gentry, that the the distinction goes from, like, they were in a house that they thought they owned, and now I presume that they're probably renting a space that's probably nice. It's nice enough to house three servants or four servants, but they're not owning it anymore. So it's like the dispossession has to do with like they are no longer landed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to be in line with the fall that's happening here. And it's also one of those things like you can you can make a lot of if they're working, you have 300 pounds a year, you could work, you can make money, but it's very hard to go the other direction. It's hard to get land back, especially in England. That, that that's the 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 poorness that they're the poor gentry but now they're not even gentry because they're not they're not owning land like they've they've lost that right and polly did her best to keep up appearances and keep her family like in those same social circles so i think that's also kind of where like a lot of their privilege came from being in those circles because the story of barbara cartland is not necessarily like being an extremely wealthy woman at any point in time i can't tell you how much money that she had But a lot of it is just like her connections, the people that she knows. And that's something that she did get from like being related to heiresses and financiers and from being in these elite circles. I feel like you said something earlier about like there's this, I don't know who's trying to like bootstrap her legacy. Like like it's Uh people around her that are like, hey, Barbara, that's not like really going to resonate with readers. Um, (laughs) Let's maybe talk about how hard you worked and stuff. But that's like very common, like especially with celebrities now who like will grow up rich and then you read like biographies of them and it like will conveniently not talk about like the like super private, like the private schools they went to and that they're parent was like a VP at this company and maybe like helped them out with a connection or even just like having the space to like work on their craft and not worry about rent like other people. (laughs) So I find it's like interesting, like even with Barbara Cartland, it's been a a narrative for a long time to make celebrities a little bit more approachable or authors and not be like, yeah, she just conveniently knew someone. That's why she got published. (laughs) It's so funny because I was just thinking about this too because um, we just watched the Red, White, Royal, Blue movie last night. Mm-hmm. And so something that I remember, I guess it's also in the book too, but like Alex, one of the main characters is the president's son. And like he's contrasting himself to Prince Henry from England. And he keeps saying like, oh, I'm working class. Like I'm from working class. Yeah, and right. it's like, you didn't, you're not working class. You Nobody goes from being working class to a president's son directly. Like there's like a lot of, there's a lot of steps that there's a lot of something in there. And then like, sure enough, every house, like every whatever that they go to. I don't know. I Sometimes I wonder what people think working class is. Yeah. I think it's also hard. I, this is something I struggle with me as a historical romance novel reader of books mostly set in England is like, I understand the British class system. Like I've read enough things about it. Like I get, I get that it is different, mm-hmm. but it's like, it is hard to grasp like the meaning of class and like the lack of mobility that happens there. Like I thought mm-hmm. about this with the actress Phoebe Waller-Bridge, showrunner of Fleabag. It's like people are always revealing that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is actually like, very wealthy. Yeah. But it's like if you watch Fleabag, it's like there's also signals of wealth in her family in Fleabag. But like an American viewer of Fleabag watches the character Fleabag and thinks she's working class because like she lives in kind of a rundown apartment. She's like she has her little guinea pig cafe. But it's like those are her things that she's doing 
like while her father has lots of money that she will eventually have like her mm-hmm. father owns a house her father is able to gift her all these things and like pays for her therapy and so there are all these signals of like where fleabag is in it but it's like i i don't think that it's like false for her to have this like working class looking life like i think that is something that is hard to grasp as an american like that it this money could be coming to people in mm-hmm. a way in england that it is confusing to people and i think red white and royal blue seems to was dealing with that a little bit where it's like you you think you're working class in america and then there are people who are maybe have less money with the prince has more money but there are people who have less money in england but aren't working class and it, it's just mm-hmm. strange i'm not an like, remote it's just one of those things i get i get confused yeah by. it's very um, confusing and, i think <laughs> <laughs> who knows how much money anyone has to honestly. Right. <laughs> but polly was kind of an expert at keeping up appearances if they needed to go somewhere like she would rent conveyance to make them look like they had like a certain amount of wealth she could not afford a governess and so she had to like share with other families so then barbara was like sent to some friends with the bath and then she went to somerset so it was kind of like a sort of like landed gentry educational rideshare system that they had going on there barbara is kind of obsessed with like the physicality and beauty and so there's kind of like this point where she's a young teen where she is just like oh no i'm hideous this is the worst thing that's ever happening to me which is very relatable i think that's a very like 13 year old thing to happen but then of course she grows into herself like she grows into her ankles like having small ankles is i didn't realize how significant that was for a lot of people (laughs) yeah i did i i have other things that i focus on i've never even thought about my ankles but i've i've been I've been hearing a lot about ankles in this book. (laughs) But yeah, she was considered quite a beauty. Uh, So she had like very, very green eyes. She said people would call them Barbara's headlights. Uh, I don't know who called them that. That wasn't. That's not the part of the body that I've ever heard described as headlights. But (laughs) yeah, sure. Right. Maybe people were talking, you know. Like I just, there is another one that I was like, I've never heard it described as someone's eyes. Yeah, maybe people were being like really raunchy with Barbara, and she just didn't she get just, it. Like, yeah. didn't she should read more Jackie Collins books. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so Polly really struggled to keep Birdie occupied. So Birdie is not employed at this time; like he'd never been employed. Uh, but he was not really wealthy enough for his like wealthy men hobbies, his wealthy boy whims, if you like, will. <laughs> Yeah, he couldn't, he couldn't really keep up with that. So Polly's like, I've got to keep him distracted. I can't have him trying to like keep up with all of these people that he, he cannot financially keep up with. He kind of drank too much. And so Polly had to kind of steer him around until 1911. And that's when he became the provisional secretary of the Primrose League, which was his conservative club. So he was apparently a very good public speaker, and Polly hoped that he would later become a member of Parliament. This didn't happen for Bertie, but it did for Barbara's brother, Ronald, who we'll definitely talk about more later. So when World War I broke out, Bertie became a soldier, and that did give him some more direction, but I suppose landed gentry habits die hard, because when he was stationed at Flanders, he mailed back his laundry so that Polly could wash it, and then she would mail it back to him. That's the craziest thing I think I've ever read. Yeah. You talk about, like, help me budget, my family is dying. Why are they paying for that postage? (laughs) It's 4,000 candles. (laughs) So... 
Brady really wanted distinction in the war, like some type of medal, uh, but that never came. Uh, he was eventually killed in the Battle of Messines. So Polly lost her husband. So she's raising, she has Barbara, she has Ronald, and then she has her youngest son, Anthony. So she's kind of continuing to try to like keep up appearances, but now she's fully a single parent. At 18, Barbara discovered a lending library and with it her interest in romantic literature that echoed the gender roles that she and her family prized above all else. So particularly the works of Ethel M. Dell, who loved a strong, silent man and like a soft, feminine woman paired together, and her kind of colonialist stories set in India, and Eleanor Glynn, who's a novelist who's behind the term It Girl. Lastly, Cartland was also influenced by E.M. Hull's The Sheik, I haven't read The Sheik, but I do know it by both its title and reputation. So it's likely very racially troubling, like Dell's work. But something that's kind of odd to me is that The Sheik is sort of thought to be a precursor to the bodice rippers of the 1970s. And so those are the same books that Barbara Kirtland would later call soft porn. I have read The Sheik. It's... um. It is racially troubling. It, it's a little, the stuff happens a very off page. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, the thing that is different, I think, compared to bodice rippers. So it, there's definitely like a sexual assault scene, but there's not a whole lot of like in between that and the falling in love. It's like it's more like a ravishment where like the mm-hmm. ravishment like leads directly to it's like a seduction, a seduction mm-hmm. through force more than like I feel like a lot of bodice rippers even early ones are structured as like there's a rape and then something has to be fixed. Like mm-hmm. the heroine has to then fall in love. In the sheik, it happens pretty immediately. And so it's structured a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're right. Racially troubling is is one way to put it. Um, it, It's rough. But yeah, so I I actually feel like Barbara Cartland, it also happens off page. So Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's why she was okay with it. I feel like she maybe she would be more okay with it because it happens off page. It's not like scintillating at all. What I thought was interesting is like a lot of her recorded interviews who you see on video are from like the 1980s. So you kind of get a lot of Barbara Kirtland talking about bodice rippers or talking about sexually explicit material like Jackie Collins, which we'll talk about later. She's very much against. And so kind of for the sheik to be like the precursor to some of those works it's kind of interesting like how people take different things from the same work right so before cars were a thing people used to go to stanhope gate at hyde park to gather after church it was called church parade and barbara who as as we're frequently told now very attractive would hope for an introduction to her friend's brothers So she had 49 proposals of marriage before she accepted her first proposal by a man named Dick Usher. And this was very short-lived. So she apparently acquired what sex was. After she became engaged, she asked her mom. And the whole sordid affair, the idea of it really put her off. So she was a teenager at the time, but nobody had ever spoken with her about that. She had never had a conversation with Polly. Because of that, she ended up breaking off her engagement because she didn't want to have sex with Dick Usher. But she did continue to date quite a lot. She was very popular. And so she had kind of like a way that she would track the men that were interested in her. So this is kind of another quote from Gwen Robbins' book. Uh, I guess I'll have you read this, Emma. As the bow queued up, and they did, Barbara had her own system of rating them. Four-star meant a dinner and dancing. Three-star was a luncheon date. Two-star tea, preferably at the Ritz. And one-star was delighted to be allowed to drive her in his car to have a meal with someone else. Oh my gosh. <laughs> one-star is rough. <laughs> I feel like I'm the, I'm the only single rake on the podcast. I feel like maybe I need to start employing this. A rating um, system for your dates. A rating dates. system for like, when I go on dates. Um, 
that like one star you're taking me on a date with someone else i also like that the ritz is two stars how does the ritz feel about this (laughs) (laughs) that really that chuffed me yeah so yeah very popular very very busy so this is a complete side note i didn't really know where to fit this in but i did want to talk about this So Barbara Cartland was friends with Lord Mountbatten for a very long time. They had a decades-long relationship with him. And so you might know Lord Mountbatten. He was a mentor to King Charles. He was murdered by the IRA in the 1980s. So Barbara Cartland and Mountbatten, their relationships kind of seems like I might be reading a little bit into it, but it kind of seems like there's like a want of something romantic there just because... uh, Kirtland stresses that Mountbatten ended up marrying Edwina Ashley, who looks a lot like Barbara Kirtland, which is one of the first out of at least two times where someone that she knows married someone who was a Barbara Kirtland lookalike, according to Barbara Kirtland. Yeah, I was going to say, according to Barbara Cartland. (laughs) According to Barbara Cartland. Mountbatten also bought her. So she had had a lot of dogs. She had uh, those like Pekingese. They're Mm -hmm. like the tiny, floofy white dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mountbatten bought her a black Labrador. So she, he gave her like a completely different type of dog. They also wrote a book together. It was called Love at the Helm. Like he would supply like the naval history and then she would write the romance. She, she was apparently very devastated when he died. This is just kind of a side, but like it's kind of hard to fit in like different pieces of who Barbara Cartland was in an organic way, just because there's so much information. But kind of backing up to her novel writing. So in 1920, Cartland decided to write a novel to one-up her brother Ronald, who announced that he was going to write the perfect essay. So she's like, I'm going to write the perfect novel. Uh, So after she started writing, her mom Polly asked the poet Dick Coventry, who had aristocratic connections, he was a cousin to Lord Coventry, uh, to read some chapters of her book. And then he was like, you have to finish this. So then a few months later, she finished her first book called Jigsaw. Jigsaw was published. Uh, Cartland was in her early 20s, and that's kind of when she becomes a public figure. So while she was still working on Jigsaw, she was also paid five shillings a paragraph to feed gossip to the Daily Express. So she continued to do this for many years, and later she ended up earning like about two pounds a paragraph for her work, like the Daily Mirror, the Daily Express, the Daily Mail, all the dailies. She didn't go into the offices and she wanted to remain anonymous. And she said she did this to avoid being fawned over and invited to parties as press. What do you think of that? I don't really buy that reasoning. <laughs> well, I feel like if she's feeding gossip and then she goes into like the Daily Mirror and like, or someone sees her, wouldn't that like tip people off? I don't know. <laughs> right, like don't tell Barbara anything. Yeah. Why would you tell yeah. Barbara if you knew? This is also like a very gauche behavior to cop to if you're like moving in ir- aristocratic circles i'm thinking like uh she's like the the food god you know oh, food god yeah <laughs> oh i don't food god he's he, he's like a he's like a hanger on with the kardashians oh okay um but his name is jonathan shaban i think mm-hmm. but he's like notorious as like the feeder to the tabloids for information about the kardashians and it's like they tolerate him for some reason and it's it's like he but he's he's also always trying to be famous on his own accord like separate from the kardashians but this he's like into he's kind of a foodie but like in like extravagant ways like he's always eating like things covered in gold is what i associate him with oh but i feel like barbara cartland is doing like food god gossip where it's like that's so embarrassing (laughs) like you're not (laughs) 
like if you're hanging out with like the the Lord Mountbatten, it's like they don't care about you; they care about him. And it, yeah, that's like I feel like that per- the person who's feeding gossip to daily newspapers is always kind of reviled, but like a uh, you tolerate them because sometimes you want gossip to go to the newspapers if you're particularly famous. It's like the devil you know, so you can maybe control <laughs> a bit. Yeah. Oh my God, Barbara Cartland, food god. So. One day, Barbara Cartland receives a summons from Lord Beaverbrook, and he's the owner of the Express. So Beaverbrook was a wealthy Canadian-British newspaperman who was a strong conservative force in British politics in the 1920s. So I'm going to have Beth read you this quote as our resident Canadian. Yeah, that literally was the name of my high school, Lord Beaverbrook, So, which <laughs> tracks because I'm from a conservative province. <laughs> okay. To editors and reporters who worked on the Express Group, a summons to see the beaver was like a direct missive from the archangel or the devil. Strong men were known to tremble before entering his presence. He could reduce intelligent editors to blithering idiots with his sadistic humor. In her naivete, Barbara was totally unaware of this and effervesced at their first meeting. She found him omnipotent, enigmatic, with a strong dynamic vitality. (laughs) I feel like this tracks with her. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, anyway. So he, of course, fell in love with Barbara. He was married and twice her age, but he did offer to make her his mistress. So that, of course, didn't happen. And the only thing that really came of that was that, according to Barbara, he was very jealous when his friend James Dunn, who's another Canadian financier and self-made millionaire, quote unquote, uh, proposed to her. Said Carlin declined that proposal. She thought he was too old and she didn't like that he was divorced. So it was through Lord Beaverbrook, though, that she made a lot of connections that will kind of come to know Barbara Carlin for. This is where she met Winston Churchill by Count Castle Ross and Sir James Dunn. Churchill would later get to know Carlin's brother Ronald while Ronald was in Parliament. So Beaverbrook served as a mentor to Carlin, so he offered to teach her how to write, and he judiciously and personally edited her work. So you kind of have to think about, like, he was the head guy. He owned the Express. He was one of the great Fleet Street personalities, and she was a gossip columnist. Like, that's kind of an interesting relationship. Yeah. Beaverbrook and Cartland drifted apart. Uh, she said that he got kind of a mild revenge on her by excluding mention of her in his gossip columns, but he kept publishing her work. So I guess he was kind of known to be vindictive, but she got off a little bit lightly. The word crusader comes up a lot for Cartland. She's definitely had a lot of causes of interest. When her brother became MP in Birmingham, she saw poverty for the first time in her life. And that seemed to have an effect on her. But I think crusader is kind of a flattering term for Barbara Cartland's political life. A 1970s article from the New York Times entitled Barbara Cartland, Still a Crusader at 71, inaccurately credits her with wielding a truncheon against people attempting to move buses during the general strike of 1926. Uh, The opposite is actually true. The general strike of 1926 was to prevent wage reductions for coal miners who already had pretty abysmal working conditions. So it was a solidarity strike. A lot of strikers were in machinery or public transport. 
And even though over a million people went on strike, it was unsuccessful because the government had nine months to prepare for it. And they encouraged middle class people to, quote, volunteer or essentially scab for the emptied positions so that things could keep running. Kirtland and her friends were these people. Uh, she wrote about it in her book, We Danced All Night, which is about her adventures in the 1920s. She says, I got in touch with my friends and found that everybody was volunteering to help in any way they could, and that centers had been set up in different parts of London where volunteers could apply. I discovered that my nearest center was at Hyde Park Corner. I didn't, of course, learn until later the reasons for the strike. What I did sense, and what had been obvious from my brother's attitude, was that the majority of Londoners resented being held to ransom by the strikers, and it was felt to be an adventure to fight back by carrying on as usual. And then later... What the strikers didn't envisage was the defensive solidarity of what they called the bourgeoisie. It was the bulldog determination not to give in, which had not been known since the autumn of 1914. So carrying on as usual is not scabbing. Like she's not doing like if you were just going about your normal life, you would not be like taking on a volunteer position for someone who's striking, Barbara. Like <laughs> she's like, I didn't know what was going on. It's like, well, OK. <laughs> It seems like some cognitive dissonance about what she's blaming for her. She, I guess she wants to be on the side of the the right side of history in this like retroactive application of her. Um, but I also, does she think that being on the striker side is the right side of history? She's so conservative. I don't know if she actually feels the need to like edit herself. Right. That's a great question. She knows that this is not a thing you should say. She had a lot of interviews about the strike in the 1970s because that's when her book about the 20s came out. So she was on Studs Terkel's radio program, and he was asking her about it. And he basically was like, is this something that you regret? And she hedges a lot. She basically says that the miners didn't do a good job of saying why they were on strike. They didn't do a good job of communicating that. And that's kind of a funny thing to say because a lot of newspapers were controlled by the government at the time. She says that they didn't do a good job of communicating, but if they had known, if they, they might've reacted differently. And so he asks her again, like, would you, knowing what you know now, would you have done something differently? And then she says, I did what I thought was right at the time. So no. I, you know, <laughs> it seems par for the course that she's not self-reflecting in any way. Yeah, he, he, she's just basically kind of like, in her mind, I think that the strike went poorly because they didn't strike well enough. Like, I don't think that she has any concept of like her actions as being like something that she should have regret for because like or perhaps one of the reasons why the strike went poorly <laughs> right because right. like nine <laughs> months of preparation like the because right. what happened basically is like they were telling all of these young people they were like it is patriotic to mm. scab it is like mm. you don't want all of these bad things to happen like it it's also interesting identifying with the bourgeoisie like <laughs> i feel like that's something that is like generally it's like it's so interesting the bourgeoisie is a phrase because it's like oh people look when you're looking down you call something bougie but also when you're like looking up at you're like oh that's so bougie because it's it's bourgeoisie is bad you don't want to be the bourgeoisie because you, you you and it seems like for a lot of her early life and her family's life they're trying to distance themselves from mm -hmm. the bourgeoisie they're like we're not the bourgeoisie we're the landed gentry but she's like oh like the solidarity of the bourgeoisie and it's like that's not the class solidarity that generally <laughs> people are proud of she strikes me as someone who's just like is deeply proud of her history loves her history but knows it's like not a good sell to the public 
So I feel like lots of it is like trying to walk that line of like controlling the narrative of her family. Yeah, and this is kind of the thing too. That Studs Terkel interview is probably one of the best Barbara Cartland interviews I've ever heard because he knows how to interject and repeat what she's saying back to her and make her clarify or acknowledge what she just said. Cartland was a very rapid speaker, so she tends to bowl over a lot of interviewers, which is why I think you get so much Barbara Cartland mm-hmm. from Barbara Cartland's point of view because no one else can get a word in edgewise. <laughs> And another side note for here, there's so much about Barbara Cartland. This shouldn't be a side note. I think you could honestly do a whole episode on this, but she was a sportswoman. uh, So she participated in a woman's car race in the 30s. And in 1931, she had a record-breaking glider flight of 200 miles. So apparently at that time, most glider flights beforehand were very short. Uh, She wanted something very sustained. So she worked with two RAF officers to come up with the mechanics to achieve this. Uh, She also, during her flight, it was like the first mail delivery flight because she had a mail bag with her. So lots of record breaking, lots of firsts. Like she's definitely has, she's a very historical person. Like she's had her hands everywhere. But we talked earlier about how she had 49 proposals of marriage. So let's talk about the 50th. That is her first husband, Alexander McCorkadale. McCorkadale was Scottish, and his family made their fortune as the largest printing group in the world. So when he proposed to Barbara, he promised to buy her house in Mayfair and a Rolls Royce. She married him in 1927, uh, but it was a pretty troubled marriage. They amassed 17,000 pounds in debt within their first year of marriage. You know, the Rolls Royce, the house in London, the rental in the Orkney Islands, and then their four servants. Apparently, according to Kirtland later in life, she doesn't really say this in the early biographies that I read of her, but later in life, she says that he struggled with alcohol. So they gave birth to Rain, uh, and you will probably know Rain as Princess Diana's stepmother, the same one that she pushed down the stairs. (laughs) Fun little side note. (laughs) Fun fun side note. That's where you probably know Rain. In the early 1930s, Cartland received letters with evidence that her husband was cheating on her with a woman named Eleanor Curtis. So she didn't want a divorce. She found the whole prospect humiliating, but Alexander apparently started having detectives follow her to find evidence that she was cheating on him. So she then took the letters to a solicitor because she said she had no choice. And then a very contentious divorce played out. So he stopped paying the household bills. So Barbara was once again in reduced financial straits. She said the whole McCorkadale clan turned on her as if she'd done something wrong. And so she felt very isolated. I find this very telling because Cartland is very anti-divorce. Cartland is very... There are many times where she says that you need to take care of a man in order to keep him happy and that your husband's unhappiness is because of you. So there's this interview that Barbara Kirtland did in 1991 with Dr. Anthony Clare on his popular BBC Radio 4 show in the psychiatrist chair. So I'm going to have y'all reenact this. Yes. Um, <laughs> so Emma, you're going to be Barbara. Okay. And, and Beth, you're going to be Dr. Anthony Clare. Okay. And go. When you look at the miseries and the diseases of the world, so to speak, are you saying that if blame is to be apportioned, women deserve more of it than men? No. If blame is to be apportioned, it's women's lib. Women's lib has broken up the guidelines. If you marry someone you love, it's your fault if he goes off the rails. It's your fault. 
You're the one who guards your husband. You've got to keep him away from temptation. You've got to make him happy. So thrilled with you that he doesn't want another woman. Would you blame yourself for the first marriage breaking up, then? That wasn't a woman exactly. It was drink. It's very difficult to cope with drink. All right. But had it been a woman, you would have blamed yourself? If I had lost my other husband, I would have blamed myself. So what do you think of this? <laughs> I'm not surprised. I feel like she's very much of that approach of like, I'm the exception. Obviously, my circumstances are different from any other woman. Like, no other woman would experience these circumstances. Like, <laughs> uh, Yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, I also feel kind of bad for her. Mm -hmm. It's like, if her first husband is abusive and drinking and is whatever, whatever, he's doing that causes the divorce it seems like mm -hmm. she's maybe hedging a little bit about what is leading he's cheating or drinking it's like she she's thought she's gotten married she's gonna be with him forever they've had a kid together like it's that's a person who that's a character who i'm sympathetic with like that mm -hmm. sort of narrative of like young wife at home her husband stepping out she's blaming herself but it's like barbara can't she, at, at no point in her life we know does she ever like not like externalize that vitriol towards other women as well so it's like you can't even feel sympathy or empathy towards her in this probably very difficult moment in her life because you know she's she's just gonna like blame all blame everyone else which ha I mean that happens a lot with like when you hear about like stories of like conservative women explaining like why they're at fault for like things that have happened to them and you're like that sucks I feel bad for you but also you're in this position where you're making other people other women also at fault like you're you're expanding it so that you're not alone and it's it's a bummer. Yeah. It's got to be so lonely. It's got to be kind of like you're all of a sudden occupying the space that you thought that you never would be in because you're doing everything right. And so you have to like make these like mental leaps to make it not your fault, even though by your own standards, it would be your fault. Like by Barbara Cartland's standards, her divorce not working is Barbara Cartland's fault. But like, that's just like, an unimaginable way to live there's right. it's not her fault like nobody would think that it was her fault but like she has to get there and then also keep that early belief at the same time yeah keep her overarching belief intact i think that's that's the why most conservative women feel that way it's like okay here's my overarching belief i'm the exception right at this point she's she's divorced she falls in love with viscount rattenden but apparently, if you win a divorce, you are watched by an anonymous man for six months called the King's Proctor. I'm sorry, that's crazy. Like, keep going. <laughs> I've never heard of this role before. This is this is wild. Yeah, this sounds so, like it should be like a romance novel. But keep going. Yeah, I want you someone fall to in love with your King's Proctor. Oh my yeah. goodness, Emma! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> watch you and if they have found that you've either behaved poorly or had an affair during those six months after your divorce your divorce is null and void so you have to be like on your best behavior that does make sense in like um like fault divorces that like uh -huh. you right. can't if you're suing for divorce it has to be someone else's fault and so you do it's like a much more like a civil case mm -hmm. this is this is divorces are still civil cases but it's like you're not mm -hmm. in no fault divorces you don't need any there's no harm that has to be done, but if, if both people are cheating, it doesn't it doesn't work. Also, she's probably her her settlement probably um was different based on her husband cheating, but not her. Mm. She probably got more money from her husband based on that. Mm -hmm. So that that makes sense. It, it doesn't. It makes sense that it could be null and voided. The level of surveillance seems a little 
It seems extreme. Um, it seems expensive. Like, the state is... Why are you paying for this? I'm so obsessed with this potential novel that could happen. <laughs> the stakes are so good. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I feel like someone needs to fall in love with their King's Proctor. That is so romantic. Like, people fall in love with their divorce attorneys all the time. Like, on Sex in the City. Oh, um, yeah, of like course. This is, this is the... This is the historical this is version. <laughs> It's like he's like I can't I can't turn her in for the affair because she's having it with me. <laughs> <laughs> but when Barbara and the Viscount could be together, Barbara find out that the Viscount couldn't have children. So she loved Rain and she was always talking about how she's the most beautiful baby in the world. But Rain was a girl. She wanted more children abstractly, but she really wanted boys. She thought boys had more value. This is something that she says in a few interviews. So even though the Viscount built a nursery for Rain, she was kind of like, no, I can't do it. I want more children, which I think that's fair. Like, you want more kids. I just think it's kind of like tinged with Barbara's like preference for yeah, boys. Yeah, asterisk. Kind of she wants it, she wants a boy. Yeah, makes it less relatable. But yeah. I, that is a reason not to marry someone. So then she later is gets with Hugh McCorkadale, who's Alexander's cousin, and apparently he fell in love with Barbara at her wedding with Alexander and remained devoted. So he was disabled. He was wounded at Passchendaele and had a a lot of medical complications after the fact. So they were warned that they would only have five years together because of Hugh's health, but their marriage lasted for 27 years. So she had two sons with Hugh, Ian and Glenn, and they were later very involved in like the Barbara Cartland industry, like her work as a novelist. But before we talk about her books, I want to talk about Ronald Cartland, her brother. This is a quote from Henry Cloud's book, Barbara Cartland, Crusader in Pink. I guess I'll have Emma read this. As early as the beginning of 1936, she was writing in an article in Pearson's Weekly in answer to the question, what matters most to women? Quote, men matter most. The trouble with most women today is that they will not realize that women can only succeed when they are the inspiration or the shadow behind men. That men become great through them. That is the secret of women's power. It was the cruelest twist of Barbara's life that the one man she could successfully have done this with turned out to be her brother, Ronald. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's also, it's always interesting when you see women talking about this who have their own careers. Mm -hmm. It's like this sort of like pervasive thought behind that. It's like other women in Barbara Cartland's circle know this, but other women in Barbara Cartland's circle are not making oodles of money based Mm -hmm. on their own work. And so it's weird when you see like the, that, that opinion coupled with like the women that you hear about and who've published and written a lot are also often independently wealthy. So it's odd that 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 coupling happens so often. Right. So I'm going to get into a lot more about Ronald Cartland, but like what, to your point, like everything you read about Ronald Cartland, Ronnie is always mentioned in conjunction with Barbara Cartland. Like she's always the more famous person. Like there, it's always tied to her. And she's so involved in his life, in his political life, that like it is weird to think of her standing behind him because she is always seen as the more notable figure. There's this thing like where like she thinks that she has to, uh, in order to be worthwhile or like to fulfill her womanly duties, she has to lift a man on the highest possible for the pedestal. That's not something that she's going to do with Alexander. That's not something she's going to do with Hugh, but that is something that you can do with Ronnie. 
I don't want to say, say that her relationship is just her trying to like move him forward and to like make him succeed. They were extremely close. She was both very close to Polly. She was very, very close to Ronnie. Ronnie adored Barbara. Like they are very close, but like this was kind of like that big overarching relationship in her life, I think in a lot of ways it takes up more space than like her marriages uh, and everything else as far as his his political life goes so she helped him raise the 1000 pounds he needed for election to become a member of parliament so ronald was only 27 when he won the tory seat at kings norton in birmingham so he was one of the youngest mps in the commons ronnie and barbara were both very dismayed by the poverty in Ronnie's constituency. In and near Birmingham, you had Cadbury's, Triplicks, and Austin's, but the workers there were paid very little and couldn't get on the dole unless they had nothing else in their homes left to sell. So according to Barbara, Ronnie's interest in the poor was at odds with the rest of the conservative party, and he was very disillusioned by them at points. I didn't know that much about Ronnie, but like I was very surprised to find that the personal life section of Ronald's Wikipedia page consisted of only three words. Cartland was gay. So this is where it gets very interesting. Ronald Cartland was initially backed by Neville Chamberlain, but before World War II, Chamberlain had this policy of appeasement. There was a group of young MPs that were very vocally against peacemaking with Germany, and Chamberlain pejoratively nicknamed them the Glamour Boys because a decent chunk of them were either gay or bisexual. Ronald Cartland was one of the more notable members of the Glamour Boys, so he's featured heavily in Chris Bryant's book, The Glamour Boys, The Secret Story of the Rebels Who Fought for Britain to Defeat Hitler. So according to Bryant, Berlin at the time shone out as a beacon of permissiveness, It was a place for young men to experiment, discover and embrace their homosexuality, and maybe even find the love of their life. Because of this, closeted MPs were more intimately familiar with Germany in the 1930s, and they were exceedingly alarmed by Hitler's rise to power. And this, at the time, was not a very popular position to take. Barbara and Ronnie were incredibly close, they wrote to each other frequently, and at times lived together. Uh, Barbara was careful very careful not to let her marriage like overshadow her relationship with her brother. He went missing at the Battle of Dunkirk and he was found a little bit later in Belgium. So uh, Barbara's youngest brother, Anthony, also died at Dunkirk. He died the day before Ronald, so she lost both of her brothers at that battle. So she told Dr. Anthony Clare in that BBC interview we quoted earlier that she dreamed of her brother's death before she found out. Barbara burned Ronnie's letters before she died. But according to Bryant, even what she had quoted from his diaries, you could see that he had, quote, ambiguous and ambivalent feelings about sex. So he hung out with quite a few bachelors and other men rumored to be homosexual, including his great friend, Lord Carlo. When Bryant went to ask Carlo's son, the seventh Earl of Petarlington, a delicate question, the Earl is quoted as responding, you're going to ask whether my father was homosexual. I certainly don't know that he was. After all, he died when I was just seven. But I can tell you this, his best man, his best friend Ronnie, well, he certainly was. This is so sad. I know, um, right? I'm just like... <laughs> I, I'm so sad that Ronnie died. I'm so sad that Barbara was the way that she was, but also it's it's sad to lose your brother. And it's like, I don't know like if he had lived, maybe she would have like responded to the world slightly differently. Like she's... I can't I can't imagine losing losing a sibling like this and then also having that sibling's like defining characteristic be so at odds with your worldview 
Like, I feel like that it does not to be too in the psychiatrist chair, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like very, you can connect lots of dots to Barbara's life from this event. Right. Like his death was huge for her. So she did end up writing like a biography for him and it had a foreword by Winston Churchill, actually. Um, I think it's a little bit on the rarer side. I haven't quite, I want to get a copy of it, but I haven't gotten one yet. But she, she was very invested in his legacy and in preserving his legacy with the exception of apparently those letters that Bryant said that Carlin burnt. Um, he was very widely just like presumed to be gay. And I think kind of like why that's notable in connection with his brother, Barbara is not necessarily like her homophobia, which we'll get into later. But like when they talked about Berlin in the 1930s, he kept using this term permissive society. And that's something that Barbara rails against quite frequently in the 70s and 80s. There's this idea of a permissive society that is going to be everybody's downfall. So yeah, it's just kind of like one of those things where it's like, sometimes the people that you love are also the people that you find out you've been railing against the whole time. Although I don't think Barbara, uh, I I doubt if anybody, I don't think anybody ever asked her. I've never found any reference to her talking about his sexuality, but I, I very much doubt that that would be something that she would even acknowledge as a possibility. I'm reading a biography right now that's related to this, but the changing concept of sexuality, like, like the sort of British schoolboy behavior like it gets excused in one way in some areas of England even though homosexuality is like illegal till 1967 it's mm-hmm. like who who gets to be gay and like what actually is persecuted and prosecuted for queerness like i wonder if that also something about the living out loud in public is what cartland doesn't like and it's like maybe the the men with her like the the sort of men about town men who are in the sort of like deep friendships with each other privately that also is something that like is one of those things that's hard to conceptualize, like looking back on. I, I could see Barbara Cartland seems really good at having cognitive dissonance of like holding two opposite truths in her, her head at once. I could see her sort of relying on that to mm-hmm. reconcile. And we see her with like, with men, she's very, she's like, if she doesn't approve of that behavior, then she'll just excuse it. And so I'm not saying Ronnie's doing anything bad, but from her perspective, he is, I could just see in her mind, like Emma's saying, just, with the, within that cognitive dissonance, just, like, excusing it. And as long as right. maybe he's not yeah. living it out loud, it's, you know, that's just how men are. We just yeah. l- let them do what they want. Yeah. I could see her being being that kind of, taking that kind of approach. And, it yeah, we, we don't know how she would have been if he had not died then. But I honestly, I'm, like, very pessimistic. I'm like, she probably would have been the same, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I think so. And then also something about... I don't know. Ronnie seemed like he was really having a kind of come to Jesus moment about the conservative party at Mm -hmm. a lot of times. Like it seems like he, he was frequently at odds with them. He cared a lot about poverty and that's not something they cared about at all. So like, who knows who he would have been if he hadn't died at Dunkirk. He was, I, I believe he was the first MP to die in the war, which is pretty significant. But yeah, this he, this kind of like another thing that kind of like ties her to even further to the conservative party. It ties her to ties her to Churchill. It ties her to uh, all of those folks. Um, but yeah, very very sad. Definitely the biggest man in her life out of all of the books I've read about her. 
his name kind of looms much larger than you would say Alexander or Hugh or George or any of them. It's It always kind of comes back to Ronnie. It also makes me feel a little, a little bit bad about Anthony because he also died at that same war. Other brother who right. died. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that he had like higher aspirations within like the, the military, but I he was so young. I think he's maybe like five years younger than Ronnie. So he was, yeah. So a lot of a lot of young men died during that war. That was yeah. kind of But yeah, I guess getting back to her books, back to kind of the beginning of the books, March 1925, Barbara Cartland published Jigsaw, in which a virginal young heroine named Mona meets a wicked stranger. So she tries to forget him and ends up marrying Lord Peter Leadenhall, who's an heir to a dukedom. When Peter's father dies and he inherits, she meets her new brother-in-law, Alec, who is none other than the wicked stranger that she initially met. So Mona has to choose between her affection for Peter, which she compares to a child would have for her guardian. It's not very flattering. And her love with Alec, which is much more tempestuous. So Henry Cloud and Barbara Cartland, Crusader in Pink, thinks Jigsaw is not just a blueprint for her books. He says that her life was basically a choice between the Alex and the Peters of the world. It sounds profound, but maybe not. She she did always choose the Peter. Yeah, I've, I'm finding this description of a love a child would have for her guardian very strange. <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird. <laughs> But anyways, he has uh, kind of more to say about how like Jigsaw was like the blueprint for a lot of her heroines, a lot of the Barbara Cartland virgins. Uh, So uh, Beth, I'm going to have you read this next part. Mona was in fact the prototype of all those spiritual virgins to follow, almost all of whose Christian names end with an A. There are Bertia, Toria, Dorinda, Benedicta, Angelina, Mariska, Orisa, Polina, Alida, Anita, Crisilda, Canella, Selena, Dolora, Ivana, Pandita, Matilda, and 300 more. Yes, said Barbara, when I mentioned this to her. I always try to give my heroine a name ending in an A, simply because Jigsaw brought me such luck and started me off in my writing career. I must admit it is getting very difficult now that I'm coming up on my 380th virgin. (laughs) Starting to sound like mumbo number five. (laughs) I want a song with all those, the A names. All those virgins with the name ending in A. I know. She doesn't hear this, but saying I'm coming up on my my 380th virgin makes her sound like Like Wilt Chamberlain. (gasps) Like she's having these virgins. Yeah, 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 it does. That's. It's like, Barbara, you're not listening to what you're saying. That's not what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So she wrote very quickly. She could write a book in two weeks. Her process was that she would dictate her novels. And at one point, she had three secretaries who would take her dictation. I don't know the logistics of that. I assume it's one (laughs) at a time. But maybe they're all kind of like factory lining it. Anyways, she rapid fire dictated her books. According to her estate, she wrote over 723 books in her lifetime. So to compare, Nora Roberts has written over 200 at this point, and Danielle Steele around 185. That's kind of the output similarities there so far. So they would both have to like triple the amount of books to reach where Barbara Cartland was. In 1976, Cartland set the world record for most books written in a single year at 23 books. She's gotten a lot of criticism for recycling plot lines and her work is very 
samey. That did not bother her at all. She was very much of the mindset that you keep selling people what they like. And there was always a market for Barbara Cartland during her lifetime, even if it was diminished at some points. So this is kind of where we get into another thing about Cartland and the sameness of some of her books. So something that comes up a lot of times when I've heard people talk about Barbara Cartland is the claim that she plagiarized Georgette Hare. Hare and Cartland both were contemporaries. They were only a year apart in age and they both wrote Regency romances, but they were vastly different in personality. Hare published These Old Shades during that general strike of 1926, uh, so there was no publicity for it, but it sold incredibly well. Because of this, and also just because she was likely very introverted, uh, she declined to promote herself or become a public figure. She just wanted to kind of write her books and not have to deal with any of that. Cartland, as we are well aware, like very much courted the limelight. So the plagiarism claims come from Hare's letters that were published posthumously in Jennifer Closter's Georgette Hare, Biography of a Bestseller. So apparently a fan tipped Hare off to some similarities between her books and Cartland's in the 1950s. And Hare wrote some very angry letters to her literary agent, Leonard Parker Moore, with what she saw as evidence. Hare analyzed Cartland's novels and identified Regency phrases that she believes comes from her own work, noting that Cartland misused them. Hare also cited similar characters and plot points. This quote from one of Hare's letters is actually kind of hilarious. I think I could have borne it better had Miss Cartland not been so common-minded, so salacious, and so illiterate. <laughs> oh my gosh. Shots fired. Yes. <laughs> so... I was kind of like looking into this and I honestly thought the evidence against Cartland was a bit specious. So I asked Emma for some insight. Yeah. So we're going to do a little, a little like sideways detour into copyright law. This is mostly, I'm going to talk about American copyright law. I did look up some stats about, or some, the status of British copyright law. But I obviously am not an expert on either of these areas, even more so English copyright law, which I know is a completely different beast. But just to help us understand like who we should be mad at in this beef, because that's something I've seen Chels talk about, is that people will feel like they need to take sides one way or the other, like ethically on who's cheating who. And it seems like maybe people are picking and choosing based on who they like, Hare or Cartland more. So the first thing I want to make clear is that plagiarism is different than copyright infringement. Plagiarism is an ethical violation um, where the plagiarizer may experience consequences from whatever institution is giving them authority, but the words mean different things. Plagiarism is a much more useful concept in academia than fiction writing. Obviously, you can plagiarize in fiction writing, but it's, it's just not useful for copyright infringement. And then something to keep in mind with copyright that can be kind of counterintuitive, but this comes up a lot when I see genre fiction fans talk about copyright, is that ideas are not copyrightable, only expressions are. This means that things that are intangible are not protected by copyright as much as they feel like they should be, because often the ideas are what makes up what we feel like the bulk of the work. So the biggest portions of a copyrighted work might actually have less protection, things like plot or character compared to short passages. There are cases where copyright infringement is found for incidental art in the background of a TV show. Like they're filming somewhere, there's art behind it, and the artist will sue the TV show over that art appearing in the show. That has been found to be copyright infringement, while taking a plot wholesale might not be because a plot is an idea rather than an expression. 
So copyright law in the United States for plots, characters, and phrases, which are the accusations that Hera made against Cartland, are different. The protections for those three things are, are different because of their levels of idea versus expression. Courts see them as protected in different ways. Copyright is really weird. So there are multiple tests for determining these things, depending on what federal circuit you're in. But they also are used sometimes together. So one of the main things that Hare is accusing Cartland of is taking characters. But I think this is really relevant to genre fiction is that courts in the United States have found that stock characters are not copyrightable. So things like a rake or a rake with dad trauma or a rake with dad trauma whose mom died, all these things that sort of make up the genre of historical romance are not copyrightable. It falls under this doctrine called sings on fair which is that stock characters are not unique to an expression within a genre, so they cannot be copyrightable. So these characters that come up again and again are not able to be protected. Characters are tricky because there's multiple decisions or multiple tests for these in different circuits. But I think a great example is Stam Spade from the detective fiction novels. Sam Spade, the detective character, he was Dashiell Hammett character, created him. Dashiell Hammett sells the rights to uh, Warner Brothers to make the Maltese Falcon. Warner Brothers says, we have the copyright to Sam Spade. The court allows Dashiell Hammett to continue writing Sam Spade novels, even though the Warner Brothers has the copyright to the Maltese Falcon, because Sam Spade is not instrumental to the plot of detective fiction. Then the other side of that is that Sherlock Holmes is considered a copyrightable character in a different circuit. Like Sherlock Holmes is the, like, you can't have a Sherlock Holmes story without Sherlock Holmes being there. Those are often sort of they're good parallels because they're both detectives and you can sort of see like Sam Spade, stock character detective, Sherlock Holmes goes something beyond a stock character. Literature characters are really hard to copyright. Characters that have been found to be copyrightable are things like Rocky Balboa and James Bond. Visual elements really help a character be copyrightable. But that expression of a literary character, it's just very hard to do. And then phrases, which is the other thing that Hare accuses uh, Cartland of taking, Phrases are very hard to copyright. Short phrases are it's just not really what copyright is for. It's, these sort of, it's much more like trademark and you can trademark a short phrase if it's sort of iconic to your brand. But the court realizes that phrases conveying an idea are typically expressed in a limited number of ways and therefore not subject to copyright protection. And also Hare, like she admits that she's getting these phrases from history. She's like, I did all this research and I found these phrases and I'm using them correctly and Cartland isn't. And so she's stealing them from me because she didn't do her own research. The court is very clear. History is not copyrightable. So Hare really doesn't have a case as far as I can tell here based on her accusation. So if you read about this beef and you think like, oh, like I'm coming down on Hare's side or Cartland's side or I'm coming down on Hare's side because I don't like Cartland and like authors shouldn't steal things. Cartland, I mean, she she did a lot of bad things in her life, but I don't think this is one of them. <laughs> yeah, I just was always kind of interested in seeing, like, I think because people were kind of, like, wanting to dunk on Cartland, like, to talk about, like, these plagiarism claims. But, like, I think maybe recently Cartland has kind of become someone that people are, like, openly skeptical about because of her beliefs about sexuality. But I, I hair's beliefs age just as poorly, like, if not more. <laughs> so it kind of, it was interesting to me that people would, uh, I guess maybe Hare's work has maybe stood the test of time more. Like, you're much yeah. more likely to hear people talk about these old shades than you are, like, any Barbara Cartland book or, like, The Black Moth or what have you. She really also gets the benefit of not being interviewed. Like, we talked about, she right. wants to say not in the limelight. We don't have all these sort of lightning rod 
quotes from her about like the times that we live in, which is so much of like Cartland's mythos. Knowing like how anti-Semitic hair was and yes. how racist she was, like those interviews would would have not be good. Like, yeah, <laughs> right. I think that we would kind of, uh, Cartland has a very public record of all of the many, many things that she has said, but we, so it's kind of a little bit easier if people wanted to, to ignore hair. Although I think, I think recently people have really started interrogating her more and like her effect on Regency romance. But yeah, that's kind of an interesting side note. That's something that does come up a lot when you like, when people talk about Barbara Kirtland because of these two titans of the industry did not like each other. <laughs> Is this a funny hair calling Kirtland salacious? Right. <laughs> Considering what we're going to talk about next, because it's like, how, I wonder how Kirtland re- responded to that because her whole thing. She loves the virgins. She, she's the, She loves the virgins. And it's like, it's wild that hair. And I think it's salacious maybe for Cartland is like a stand in for like, kind of like over the top, like hair is not, she likes the historically accurate, tepid, like, yeah, maybe it's more scenes. like the adventure plots that she would do or something that she's like right. referring to. Mm-hmm. But associating that with like salaciousness and sex, it's like, oh, it's funny. Cartland. Yeah. It's like, it's also, that's, that's how misogyny works is like you attack other people and it's like, that's not going to protect you from some other biddy calling you salacious. (laughs) (laughs) That is actually a very good segue into the next part. So another thing that Barbara Cartland is very well known for is for her infamous argument with Jackie Collins on the set of Wogan in 1987. So Cartland was there to promote her TV movie, A Hazard of Hearts, which we will also talk about later. Uh, So if you don't know who Jackie Collins is, um, Jackie Collins was Joan Collins' younger sister. She was acting initially, and then she published The World is Full of Married Men in the late 1960s. And that book was kind of known to be very racy at the time. Collins wrote what people used to call pot boilers, which is when you write a book very quickly to make money and cater to popular taste. It's a bit of a pejorative. I think pot boiler has a sort of sexual connotation because it makes no sense why Collins would be a pot boiler writer and not Cartlin of the 732 novels. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, that was something that people said about Collins. Very, very popular writer. So they were both on Wogan together and It's so interesting. So I guess first we're going to play a clip from the beginning that I want to talk about. And this is not something that people talk about a lot because it's before the disagreement between Barbara Cartland and Jackie Collins. We've got to go back to the family. And that's why he's having a family film. And I mean the whole family. This is your new... grandpa, the children, everybody. Is this Hazard of Hearts? Yeah. A new miniseries. But you've never, no Cartland book has ever been made into a miniseries. No, this because I was time. too pure, you see, and they all wanted something dirty and gone, yes. people rolling about naked on beds, and that isn't me, you see. And so now at last, or Grey has realised, we've got to go back to the family to save the world. I mean, look at the mess it's in. Look at the mess the heart is done. Look at the rush. We've got AIDS, we've got everything's awful, we've got children more worse treated than they've ever been in history, and I yes. read a lot of history. What do you think about this? My first impression of it is just, like, the complete, like, non-reaction from the audience. Like, I don't know if they didn't hear her or just, like, saying it too quickly. But, yeah, she just, like, yeah, and AIDS. (laughs) 
nobody says anything. Like, there's no pushback from the host or anything. I guess it's maybe not surprising. I feel like at the time, not a lot of people were framing it the way that we frame it now. So... Yeah, I just think that for me, like anytime somebody says think of the children and then AIDS, I'm like, what, what? Like, <laughs> and, and that's kind of exactly where that moment came from. And so I think there could be like some, because she's just like barreling through that section, yes, right? Yes. She's just like, it's just like a very like brief side note. I was kind of like curious about this. Like, I was just, and this is before I knew anything about Ronnie too. I was just like, Barbara Carlin probably has like fucked up views about gay people, right? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I I think that is correct. So there was this uh, publication called the Gay Men's Press. So it was founded in London in 1979. They printed fiction and nonfiction for the gay community. And so when they celebrated their 10th anniversary, the Sunday Mirror posted an article called Stop the Bookshop Poison, Authors Fight Move to Sell Gay Literature on High Street. Cartland is quoted in this article. She says these titles could easily pollute children's minds. So that's kind of tying it back to this interview. It's like this whole think of the children thing. So it's not just premarital sex. It's also homosexuality. It's like this kind of like level of deviancy. And something that I think is really interesting, too, is that like Jackie Collins is like kind of a gay icon. Partially just because of like being related to Joan Collins and being in those circles. They were written about often by Dominic Dunn. Like gay people would rally behind both of the Collinses. And then also even before like RuPaul's Drag Race like really took off. Like in the second season, Collins was a host. So this was back when like the queens were um, like Wet Seal and Forever 21 before it was like this big, huge thing. So Collins was like in before. And so that's kind of like an interesting contrast between the two women, like even before we get Jackie really saying anything at all, which kind of gets us into the fight. So it's, it's, I fight seems kind of like a strong word to, cause Colin seems to really take it in stride, but we're going to go ahead and play this next clip. And apart from that, we've got to do something about the whole country. You know, we have, and we've got to get away from all this awful, terrible, it's evil really. We've got the pick, the, 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 Books that you write, quite frankly. <laughs> Have you ever thought of the effects it has on young people? Yes, they love it. Every moment of it. I know they, they write love me letters it, and they that say, is what is I was wrong. reading it under the covers and Matron came in and said, what are you reading? Let me tell you something, Barbara. There's room for both of us. There's room for your books, which I'm sure are terrific, and you have huge fans everywhere, and there's room for mine, which are a little more racy, and people enjoy reading. Yes, but do, yeah, I quite agree they may enjoy it, but don't you think it has helped the perverts? It Ooh. has helped <laughs> <laughs> There's a pervert out there watching me. <laughs> yes, I didn't do it intentionally. Know, and you've you, you upped all this awful abuse of children. All that comes from a permissive society. The permissive society started in 1970, and everybody said, you're the queen of romance, we're all going to have romance. But they didn't have romance. The publishers were told to write like Barbara Carlton with pornography. I went out to America, and there were all the, the I was going to say girls, middle-aged women, um, all writing things that they knew nothing about. Most I of them hadn't been never, kissed. You know, nobody's ever said to me, this is really true, they've never come up to me and said, you must write like Barbara Cartland, but put in a bit of pornography. No, because, no, because you've done um, it on your own. Without any, any need of Barbara Cartland, there's no this Barbara Cartland in it. No, but, but the point is, no, listen. There's a question doesn't... I've been meaning to ask. <laughs> I mean, I have to ask this question, because a newspaper did a piece on Barbara once and a piece on me, 
and Barbara was given the stud to read, uh, the book, the stud to read. And she said, it was a horrible, disgusting book, and I stayed up all night reading it. I want to know what she was doing all night. No, I didn't. I said that at all. You did? What I said was, <laughs> <laughs> what I said was, I thought it was a horrible book because it was so terribly improper. And you see, uh, I worry terribly about the people who follow us. You know people are influenced, and you know that nobody really has worked out what happens when think those sort of things go into the brain. You but you know what you said it. earlier? You, you have said... to go on. No, wait a minute. When things are taken up by the Excuse brain, me? it's like an encyclopedia, and you can't get rid of it. Something, it's rather like the people say on the television, oh, you can turn it off, you can turn it off, you can't, you've seen it. I gratefully, they needn't go out and buy one of your books or mine. But on the television, it's all copied, you're on the television too, they have, they, 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 you've seen it, and you can't get away from it, it's in your mind. Once you've seen something, it remains there. I really like Jackie Collins in this interview because, yeah, like you said, she kind of takes it in stride and she's the only one who's kind of providing any pushback, but like very almost like in a fun way. She's just like, well, how would you know about about this? (laughs) Apparently you're too pure and good to be like having sex like the rest of us. Like the comment about staying up all night. She's like, I wonder what she was doing with my book. Yeah. (laughs) Barbara has no idea. Barbara's like knows enough to be embarrassed, but like not enough to be mad. Yeah. Like, does she get the joke? I don't know. It's like almost like it didn't like compute for her. She kept kind of like barreling through. So something that I think is so interesting, and I think about this all the time because this interview goes viral. Viral is a strong word, but this interview (laughs) circulates on like romance internet quite often. And I've been kind of alarmed by a lot of like the ways, uh, like something that we see a lot in like book spaces online where people think that you need to protect children from certain content in books, like certain sexual content, either no sex in YA or children reading adult books that are too old for them. This is something that we see online all the time. And so in this one headspace, people are like, Cartland's a dinosaur. She's saying these things that we're mocking and that nobody believes anymore. But I'm like, I feel like I hear people say that all the time. They're just saying it in a different way. Like, well, like the types of videos you're talking about, we'll see like a bookseller and they'll talk about an interaction where they're like the cashier and typically a girl has come to the counter and she's buying a book that is like has sex in it. And like maybe they're assuming like the parents don't know, but they'll like put it to the internet and they'll be like, what should I do? Should I tell the parents like this has like sexual content in it? And I'm like, oh my goodness, like what are you doing? Mind your business. I I also thought of the the bookseller thing because I feel like that happened like a few times in succession, like multiple booksellers were doing this. It's like, don't do this. Don't. Like, that's don't. weird. This is why you should use a library, because a librarian, any good librarian, would never that, that is like so <laughs> antithetical to like, a librarian's ethos. It's like people are totally policing it. And it's like, it, also the, like, I read this, and so this fucked me up in this specific way. Oh, as I hate if that, you could yeah. trace, like, a through line. Yeah. And, like, also because it fucked me up, which, like, even if you accept that as true, I feel like all the ways that people can be messed up by things, reading fiction is one of the safest ways to be messed up. Like, right. <laughs> you should you should be able to read fiction so that, like, you can it, – it's, like, a, the whole thing is that it, it's, like, a safe interaction. Yeah. Hot take. We think kids should be able to read about sex in books. Like, like the safest way possible yeah. to, like, start interacting with it. I'm right. blown away. So then you don't – 
you don't get to your 49th proposal and then <laughs> and then finally discover what sex actually is <laughs> right like we don't we don't want that for people that doesn't seem to have worked out very well for barbara don't we want it's like you want people to be able to like conceptualize things experience them in a safe way and it's like yeah the a book has no other there are no adults around like you're you're being able to do it completely on your own mm-hmm. that seems ideal and and people who tout themselves as incredibly liberal or lefty will suddenly become very reactionary when it comes to this topic. Yeah, I find it kind of funny because I feel like a lot of those same people are also like, they see romance books as like instruction manuals and are like mm-hmm. a good way to experience things. Like we don't really um, believe that here on this podcast, but if they believe that and then they also don't think like... S- that it's a good way for like a reader to like learn about sex. I don't know. I think it's very strange. Yeah. And that's kind of like, that kind of ties it back to Barbara Cartland again, because like she thought you needed to be a virgin until marriage. So mm-hmm. all of her heroines were virgins until marriage. She thought that ostensibly was not comfortable with homosexuality. So she was like in favor of like restricting access to books from the gay men's press. Like yeah. these are not b- Beliefs that people would align themselves with if they were communicated in this way, in this Barbara Cartland way, where they're like, oh, this is outdated. But like, put another face on it, change a few letters. It's people are saying the same thing as Barbara Cartland. And that's just kind of what blows my mind. So, yeah, be Jackie Collins. (laughs) Barbara Cartland, next time you're like, you're shaming someone for reading Colleen Hoover, maybe just. Think yeah. about who 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 else does this? Is it are yeah, be Jackie Collins. Just be, be let Jackie people Collins. read what they want to read. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to get into this too much, but like I feel it's so similar. Like I am not a fan at all. I actually I love Jackie Collins. I really don't like the one book that I've read from Colleen Hoover, but I see so much similarities between like the way that Jackie Collins and Colleen Hoover are interacted with like in the kind of like moral panic space so it's kind of funny to see like how yeah there's so many parallels I feel like we could draw to like modern authors which is why Cartland is so interesting I will say this before we move on people should go watch the video because Barbara looks very iconic yes (laughs) they both look so good yeah Jackie Collins like with their hair and like the blazer she's a metallic jacket just her hair is teased to oblivion you should just you've just listened to it but you should you should go watch it what a halloween costume you could do anyone <laughs> should do this you and your Jackie. partner just like <laughs> barbara cartland that would be the most niche romance <laughs> beef uh, halloween costume ever i love it yeah, but no one yeah, would know don't don't sell yourself short watch the video yeah you absolutely absolutely should Barbara Cartland was, of course, on Wogan to promote A Hazard of Hearts. Uh, So that's a book that we are going to talk about and talk about the movie, the TV movie uh, starring Helena Bonham Carter. So Emma actually has a brief summary of the book. Serena Stowerly's father has done two really bad things in quick succession. He loses her in a card game and then loses his life in a duel. The winner of Serena's hand is Lord Justin Marquis of Vulcan. He is rakish enough to win a woman in a card game, but not so rakish that he ravishes her immediately. Instead, he offers to take her to his home, Mandrake, along with her dutiful servant and dog. This makes perfect sense since Justin also now owns Serena's family home from the card game. There are two main conflicts in the sort of marriage of convenience for the couple once Serena arrives at Mandrake. 
First off is Justin's mother, who is controlling, manipulative, and cartoonishly jealous of any woman that enters Justin's life. She clearly resents Serena's youth and beauty. Justin is also devoted to his mother and is blind to any abuse. The other conflict comes from an other woman character who feels like she was owed a proposal by Justin. The Martianess wants to use Justin to get to Serena's dowry, which her father was not allowed to touch, so she's still actually an independently wealthy woman, even though she's been lost in a card game. When Justin refuses to allow his mother to touch Serena's money, the Martianess arranges for Serena to be kidnapped, leading Justin to realize the extent of his mother's treachery, and Serena and Justin get a happily ever after. And then the Martianess ends up getting stoned to death by smugglers that she attempted to make a deal with. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> that was not in the movie, the right? Movie's a bit different. Yeah. <laughs> she gets stabbed by a sword in the movie, doesn't she? Oh, yeah, she yeah. Get, the death is a little less gruesome, but she does still die. Right. And the other big difference is the in the movie, Justin does not win her in the card game. A, another sort of side character who is also in the book, mm-hmm. Lord Rutham, which is not how I would say that name, but that's what they say in the movie. <laughs> wins her in the movie and then justin like wins wins her from him it's like a double win a a little less like culpable for the he's not like betting on a woman in the movie he sort of saves her Mm -hmm. from her father like the the father and justin interaction is not as direct in the movie Mm -hmm. those are the two main differences and also the way that the some of the side characters are are talked about because we're not getting like barbara cartland editorializing about people's faces (laughs) the movie is on youtube you can watch it right now um and it's weird it's uh, terrible <laughs> but if you watch it with your friends it might be a fun time if you comment through the whole movie nobody is acting in the same movie um, <laughs> helena bonham carter is very much like uh, she's not yet in a merchant ivory film but like you can tell she's going to be like she's very sort of like yes. wide-eyed like looking around like not over the top at all diana rigg plays the mother and she is in some other movie like <laughs> she's she's going she's campy she was my favorite part of the movie because in every scene that she appears she's wearing like an increasingly bizarre hat like <laughs> like she shows up in a weird hat and then every time you see her she's she's wearing a different weirder hat so she's she's like kind of the campy fun part of the film it's all on youtube and i i would it's not a good movie but i would recommend watching it <laughs> her outfits like she wears like such bold colors too like she's yes. very very great outfits yeah, I found um, the book to be very mean. It starts off quite mean uh, yeah. because, like, she's like describing Eudora, which is like Serena's lady's maid, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the way that she's described is like very cruel. This book was written in the 1940s, I believe. It wasn't adapted until the 80s. I think Kirtland is m- maybe not so gifted with chemistry. Yeah, that that tracks. Um. <laughs> the romance is like nothing. There's like nothing. Justin is like he's like a nothing burger. For, yeah, like, people keep telling us how rakish he is. He's what did he ever do? What did he ever? Do? He doesn't even like. Th- there's not even like a threatening bodice ripper element to it. Like that's what I thought was gonna happen. Like when he wins her in the card game, I thought it was gonna be like oh he is like sadistic in some way or like has mm-hmm. to be. It's gonna be like kind of gothic. Like they have to go to the house. It's gonna be like, and it's like no, he's just kind of like go to Mandrake. <laughs> Go, like he's he's actually kind of nice because like she doesn't really have a place to live. It's like why don't come come to my nice house instead of staying at your shitty rundown house? Mm-hmm. And he he the the worst thing that he does is that he sort of cannot see how terrible his mother is to her, but the mother is also hiding it. Mm-hmm. Um so he also the guy looks so much in the movie looks so much like Mark Strong, but is not Mark Strong. Um <laughs> that I kept thinking it was and I was like it's it's a different guy. Also, I this is a question I had. 
he's a marquee. Does England have marquees? We've seen, we've used that phrase now. It's like I always thought marquee marquee was or marquee was the French one, but Barbara Cartland always uses that title. Is that just she just liked it better than Marquis? Do we know? I I I don't know really. I feel like I've seen it before though. I've seen. I wonder if it's just like a snob thing. Because when I googled "Are there marquee in England?" it just <laughs> changed it to "Are there Marquess?" Mark, and then I always yeah. struggle with that word. Mark- <laughs> But it's it changed Marquis. it to the yeah. Marquis, yeah. It is hard. They changed it to the English yeah. spelling. So yeah, I wonder if it's just like I don't know, because French is kind of considered to be like a little bit of a higher yeah. language. That's what I have no idea. Someone could listen to this and and actually know what the answer is. But that's my feel. Literally everything that's coming up as a result is Marquis is French. It's just the French translation. Yeah, I can so. see why Hair was like annoyed with her. Yeah. <laughs> Like, you live in England. There are, like, why are you, that was the other thing. It's like, she's close to the aristocracy in ways. You think that she would, like, use the right time. That feels like an American thing to do, to, like, uh-huh. flip them. So I just would, I was, I just noticed that when I was writing the summary. I was like, oh, yeah, he's a marquee, which, I don't know. I have a question. <laughs> Is the book better than the movie? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, um, I don't think she's a very good writer. Like, she does not. And the the plot is, I think, like, the production level is similar to, like, her quality of writing. It's- yeah, I think kind of, like, something that I, all of our interest in romance is all three of the rakes. Like, we are really, like, character-focused, like, above everything else. Mm-hmm. And that is not at all what Barbara Cartland cares about. Like, right. as far as, like, a character is kind of, like, an archetype or, like, a, like, her virgins are her cinderellas they're all very similar they're all very like she's very unapologetic about sameness so i think that could also translate into you're writing a story you have these kind of stock characters and you're less invested in how they fit together because you're not really doing that individual work for every single book you're bringing in the same things over and over again. So I can kind of see why that would happen. I could see this being a book that someone dictated to their secretary. Like I could see that. <laughs> I could see yeah, that. Yeah, she, she's she's just putting building blocks together. Like she's not thinking about, uh-huh. okay, this is the character arc and trajectory I'm aiming for that these couples come together. It's just like, okay, I've already used these plots and characters recently. Let's remix and uh, get a new story. Right. I think that too, like kind of in all of the Cartland stuff that I've read, the several biographies, a lot of the writing about her, like it's a hazard of hearts is kind of the only one that comes up occasionally, aside from Jigsaw, because Jigsaw was her first book. And I think that's probably because of the adaptation, but a lot of her books, like she doesn't really reference her individual books very often, unless she's like, of a YouTube video where she's like showing you the artwork on the books and she'll be like, this is for this book, this is for this book. Like she doesn't seem like she has like kind of like that relationship with, which like how could she possibly? There are too many of them. Like they are all kind of like, she's trying to think of new A names. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take, yeah, that takes so much time. Yeah. I do I do think if you think about like who like what she spends a lot of time on in the book and like in the plotting of like what she prioritizes, mm-hmm. it seems to be the mom getting her comeuppance. Like she hates this character. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is it's especially weird when you're watching the movie because like Diana Rigg is having so much fun and you're like 
like all the reviews I read on Letterboxd are like Diana Rigg is like eating like Stan Diana Rigg like <laughs> she's the one who's like giving the more interesting performance but I think Cartland likes having this woman who is like overbearing mother-in-law be punished like but also it's it's odd because it's like she's the character that is like the most similar to the Barbara Cartland that we know like, right. <laughs> like older woman who seems to hate like really resent youth like and doesn't like young women who are beautiful and like wants them to be like be put in their place who's wearing like over-the-top costumes who's like <laughs> in, like sort of a magpie for things and that's like a indication of her like moral turpitude mm-hmm. it's it's like that's that that lines up with Barbara Cartland's sort of image by the 70s when this is coming out and that also the character she she's also a gambler so she's also like in debt and trying to get her daughter-in-law's money to spend on more like worldly goods and it's like that also kind of connects to like where Cartland goes at the end of her life and like how she spends her money and she ends up in debt like it, it's weird this this hatred towards this character and it's like I think she wants everyone to think of her as the Serena, but she she sort of becomes the Marchioness in a way. Um, and it's like, oh, that that must be like a hard. I, I don't want to have like sympathy for Barbara Cartland, but it's like that, that's a hard. That's like when you have internalized misogyny, it like it mm-hmm. gets weaponized at yourself eventually. Right. It, it is kind of sad. Like it's just kind of. I think so much the more I learn about Barbara Cartland, because she seems like she was very very happy, very jovial. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of like I feel like there's something like. To be said, like what she prioritizes, what she loves, like what she what she wants to put out into the world. I think it's very much at odds with the way that she sees herself. Like I think that like she, you you can only be a Cinderella, virginal Cinderella before your fiftieth proposal of marriage. Like there's a point in time where you are the older woman. You're the one who is like devalued by other people. Like you're the one who steps out of line who gets a divorce who does something that other people are going to eventually judge you for i think one thing that stood out to me in that jackie collins interview is barbara cartland kept referencing like she's been working with elderly people that they should keep working and i feel like i don't know i see this trajectory a lot where you don't have empathy for the thing until you actually like experience it yourself and so like we've Mm -hmm. been talking about like in our books you can see this kind of almost malice towards older people and like youth is like prized above all else but now that she's kind of like finally at this point of her life where she's she is older person like you said Charles, like you can only be young and virginal once (laughs) also the she's saying old people in her in the interview but it's like she's in her 80s right yeah she's an old person she's very old old person but she's she says it in a way that's very much like i my largesse to these old people. I was like, how how old are the old people, Barbara? Like it's it's okay to be old, but like you I think you by every measure mid 80s is old. Yeah. Um, and I'm not su- <laughs> I'm not surprised by her prescription. She's like, oh yeah, p- old people should keep working, should keep their mind going, like that's kind of how she's approaching life. Yes, very much a bootstrap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very bootstrap to get back to it. I guess kind of to get to like the later part of Cartland's life. So she started to view herself as kind of a health guru, like beginning in the 1960s. So she founded England's National Association for Health, which was an organization that promoted alternative medicines and supplements. 
And so she also wrote a book called The Magic of Honey, which touted honey's medicinal properties. I think it was a stud Turkle when he interviewed her after the interview, he was like talking about his experience with him and his team meeting Barbara Cartland. He was like, she gave each of us jars of honey. And we were like, why? Why? (laughs) (laughs) This was just like very much like a thing that she did. She was very invested in alternative medicine. And apparently she provided nutritional supplements to Thatcher in the 1980s. So Thatcher was known for sleeping like four hours a night, which is unfortunately something that I have in common with Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) So this is kind of like a thing that she keeps doing. Like she wants to be known for this. She says that people would write her letters. She would write thousands of letters giving people health advice, which she was not qualified to do. Um, (laughs) Catherine Falk, the founder of the Romantic Times, uh, has this like book called Love's Leading Ladies. And it's like a profile of each author, kind of like dictated to Catherine Falk. And then some of it is in their own words. And then each section would end in a recipe. (laughs) Um, But this section on Barbara Cartland has her morning routine and it is stupefying. I eat the same thing for breakfast every day. An egg, my bran, I'm a great believer in bran, a tablespoon of honey, and ginseng tea. I take all my vitamin pills, usually 70 or 80. And so there were specialty calcium tablets or what she called her brain pills, which were like vitamin E, B6, and ginseng. But like 80 pills. pills. That sounds 80 almost- pills a day. Eat some spinach. Veered into That's like unhealthy eat. territory with that um, number of pills. I saw some interviews that said 100. Yeah, it's too many pills. It's just like, it's, it's a whole a can. Ache all the time. Your body's not understand. absorbing anything at that point. That's too much. She's <laughs> just like, I can't, I can't, I can't deal with that. I just, I. Also, just the thought of swallowing 70 pills is just. How much water do you need to drink for that? That's too many. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I feel like I broke but, Emma. Out of all the things we've read, that's like the craziest thing I've been thinking about that many pills. <laughs> Of course, like through all of this time, she's like still still publishing. During the 1960s, like people were kind of worried that like Barbara Cartland books would go out of fashion because like, you know, we're having like this like sexual revolution. Like, do people still want the Cinderella's? But she was like, no, we're going to keep doing things my way. And I do believe that there's going to be a backlash. So things are going to swing back around. So it doesn't matter if like virginity and like Cinderella's are out of fashion now, it's all going to come back. Like, and that's kind of interesting because she was right about that. Like that is like a cyclical thing that we see like over time, you have like a, a wave of permissive society and then the backlash to that wave. She keeps selling like she has like she sells better in some countries than others, but she's still selling. And so Paul Gresco in his book, The Merchants of Venus, Inside Harlequin and the Empire of Romance, called her book. And he wrote this book in the 1990s. He called her books outdated, but curiously popular. So she was still cranking out her books. And then both of her sons, Ian and Glenn, were working for her. So it was like this whole family business, like till the very end. So she was granted damehood in 1992, and then she died less than a decade later in 2000. So according to her website, she wrote 723 novels. 160 of them were published posthumously by her son, Ian. We get to the point, like, so when Barbara Cartland dies, so she was worth over a million pounds when she died. 
That does not seem like a lot for how famous she was and the circles that she ran in. And then she was also in debt for more than her net worth. So she it came out to zero. It came out to nothing. This seems really crazy to me. Yeah, we were speculating before this episode and we're like, I think this money just went into a black hole somewhere. Because if you bought stuff like land or something, you'd still have that unless you were just in such debt that anything that had value was sold off. But if we compared to like Nora Roberts, who has way fewer books than her, but is still like a publishing juggernaut, mm-hmm. it's hard to find like accurate numbers. And But we can safely assume that Nora Roberts's estate is worth several hundred million dollars. And when you compare that to Cartland, it just, it's crazy. It's like, where did that money go? I'm so curious. Just like all the pink dresses in the world, I guess. <laughs> and that was kind of a thing too. So like after she died, they like auctioned off her her clothes, her outfits. And like they were, it was surprising that how little they were worth. Like none, no garment she owned was worth more than 600 pounds, mm-hmm. which is a lot for me. But like, I feel like someone of Barbara Cartland, Barbara Cartland of I'm best friends with Lord Mountbatten fame. Yeah. And I've written 723 novels and broken Guinness world records. And it just doesn't seem like it just doesn't make sense. Um, I know she wore costume jewelry. Like, she said that she didn't like getting robbed. So, like, a lot of her jewelry, like, her big gaudy stuff was costume. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, which I don't know who was robbing Barbara Cartland. I think <laughs> <laughs> Also, uh, not to say that it didn't happen, but, like, I think there's, like, there's an anecdote from Merchants of Venus where she's talking about how she doesn't wear her her real jewelry out anymore because of, because of that. But, yeah, any... That was a lot. Do y'all have any closing thoughts? (laughs) I don't know. I'm glad we talked about her. I think it's good to give context to her life and see what kind of contribution she gave to the genre. And she is a fascinating person, even though she's deeply unlikable. (laughs) Yeah, I wish people who read genre fiction and genre fiction romance like have an interest in the history because it's like, even if Barbara Cartland isn't to our taste, it's like you can't deny that like people read her. She, I think she still influences, especially a lot of authors who are publishing in England, like that she she has this influence. And so it's silly to just like push her off to the side just because she doesn't line up with our taste or our politics because it's mm-hmm. part of the genre and it is influencing things that we read, even if we don't want to really read any more of her books. Okay. And yeah. And then another thing too is like she was one of the founding members of the Romantic Novelist Association, the RNA in England. And so that's kind of like another version of like the RWA. So she does have like this like legacy of romance novelists, like even without that, even without everything, her output, like her, another thing that comes up in Merchants of Venus is that like her son is talking about Cartland and he's like at Back at a certain point, it was only Cartland and Mills and Boone. Like, not an author in Mills and Boone, but, like, all of Mills and Boone. Like, so it's, mm-hmm. she's been dominating the space for a long time. And it's, like, very interesting to kind of look back and see kind of, like, what we've kind of chosen to take from Barbara Cartland and what we're, like, trying to ignore. But, yeah, big, big, chunky episode. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes. So thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformed rakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformed rakes. 
If you like the podcast too, please rate and review us on Apple and Spotify. It helps a lot. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.